Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. Today's message is titled, The Heart of Sin. The Heart of Sin. And this is a sad, sad chapter in the Word of God. This chapter, these events in the life of Israel reveal an unpleasant truth. That even after seeing the great things God has done for them after the plagues, after the miracles, after being delivered from slavery, after being delivered from the Egyptian army, after the manna, after all those marvelous events, and after they had committed themselves to the one true God, and entered into a covenantal relationship with him, sin continues to afflict the Israelites. Sin continues to arise in their hearts. I hate sin. There are not many things that my Christian conviction allows me to say that I hate, but I can say that I wholeheartedly hate sin. Nothing causes me more angst, more stress, more pain than the battles that I fight attempting to rid my life of sin. It is a certain type of frustration known only to the Christian. It is a hard fight. It is a fight that I'm sure you all are familiar with as well. And in this chapter, we are going to view an example of just how serious this battle is, how real it is, how high the stakes are. And it's my intention this morning to show you that the war against sin, why the war against sin continues to wage, uh, what the penalty is for failing to fight, and how the fighting is done. But let's begin by taking a brief look back at the events which precede our text today. Since chapter 19, Israel has been encamped at the base of Mount Sinai while Moses has gone up and down the mountain receiving instruction from the Lord. And in chapter 19, verse 5, God said to Moses, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And then Moses calls all the elders of Israel together and he relayed to them God's conditions to which they replied in chapter 19 verse 8, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then in chapter 24, after the delivery of the first 10 commandments, God entered into a covenant with Israel. And in chapter 24, verse 3, it says, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words of the Lord has spoken, we will do. And after that, they built an altar and they sacrificed burnt offerings to the Lord. And after sprinkling the altar with the blood of those sacrifices and sprinkling the people with the blood of those sacrifices, chapter 24, verse 7 says, Then he, that's Moses, took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken, 
we will do. And we will be obedient. Three times since they arrived at Sinai, three times the people of Israel have pledged their allegiance and their obedience to the Lord. Not only that, but they made their pledge under an oath of blood, after which Moses returns up the mountain, which is wrapped in smoke and fire, which is thundering with the voice of God and flashing with the lightning of his glory. And there Moses remains for 40 days and for 40 nights. And this is where we pick up with the people of Israel in chapter 32, verse 1. Look at verse 1 with me. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Say it ain't so. How could this happen? How could the Israelites do such a thing? The Israelites, who were supernaturally rescued from the house of Pharaoh, who were witnesses to God's plagues that he worked through Moses, the Israelites who ate bread from heaven, the Israelites who have received the oracles of God, the Israelites who were at this moment encamped at the base of a mountain which was cooking under the immense power of Almighty God, where they could see the flames from the fire and they could hear the trumpet blasts. How could this happen? Sin. That's how. Sin is how this happens. They were men and women like us. There is uh, nothing markedly different between them and us. They were human. They were born in sin as we were. And now as they enter this covenant with God, they fall under attack from sin. In Genesis 4, God said to Cain that sin's desire is for you. And here, sin's desire was for the Israelites. But how did this happen? To understand how, let's look at a few things that sin reveals about us. First of all, sin reveals our hearts. Sin reveals our hearts. Look again at verse 1. It says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. The Israelites grew impatient. After 40 days and 40 nights of waiting for Moses' return, their patience had run out. They did not know what had become of him, so they took matters into their own hands. And 
the human heart is naturally impatient. We do not like to wait. And I'm sure that each of us can recall a time when we were waiting on God, seeking his direction, seeking clarity, but he delayed to give it to us. Colossians 3 verse 12 says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Galatians 5.22 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Psalm 37 verse 7 says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Patience is so often commanded because it is so often violated. Patience is hard, but impatience is dangerous. We do not like to wait. We like to hurry. We like to take matters into our own hands, which is why the Israelites fail. And that is why we fail. But the impatience exhibited here by Israel is just one of the many potential manifestations of the sin that was affecting them. James chapter 1 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Israel's desire was to have a God that they could see. They were lured and enticed by their desire to have a God that they could gaze upon, a God that they could touch, and they wanted it right now. And while they were enslaved in Egypt, the Israelites would have been witness to or even participated in uh, all kinds of idol worship. The Egyptians worshipped a myriad of pagan gods, and this particular uh, idol that the Israelites created harkens back to their time in Egypt. It is modeled after an Egyptian god. They were worshipping what they knew. They were going back to the false gods that they were rescued from, the gods that they were comfortable with. And this seems, this seems so ridiculous to us, how, how obvious of a blunder this seems to be to us through the lens of hindsight. But remember, the Israelites were blinded by sin. They were blinded by fear, fear of the unknown. And this blinding by sin also blinded the Israelites regarding what God had done for them. In verse 1 they said, As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. Sin and trial reveals our hearts' true beliefs. Their faith was in this man, Moses, not in the God who was on the mountain. And with Moses gone, without a leader that they could demand an answer from, the Israelites quickly returned to sin. Instead of being rooted in truth and in facts, they were rooted in emotion. An emotional attachment to a man of God and not God himself. They allowed their emotions to rule over them. This is a dangerous, dangerous error, but one that is unfortunately common to man. See, the natural inclination of our hearts is toward sin. It is toward darkness. We are born in sin. We are fallen creatures living in a fallen world. And the world likes to tell us that we are bent toward charity and morality and light. But we are not. We are not. We are bent towards sin. We are bent towards disobedience. Genesis chapter 8 verse 21 says, The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil, even from his youth. 
And Ecclesiastes 9 verse 3 says, The hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. And Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? There is a uh, law in the scientific world called uh, the law of entropy. It's the second law of thermodynamics, and it states something like, uh, as time progresses, as time goes on, the degree of disorder or the degree of decay of anything will always increase. It'll always get worse. And basically, it means that every material thing in the universe is moving toward a state of disorder, toward a state of decay at all times. Materials break down. Bodies decay, and the same is true of our hearts. They are given to disorder. They are given to decay. That is, unless there's someone to put them in order. And as a symptom of our fallen state without Christ, without the attention and the care of the Holy Spirit, our hearts are constantly moving towards a state of disorder, towards sin, And just as God is the only one who can provide order to the material universe, so God is the only one who can provide order to our hearts. Look at verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you've brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it. And said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. It didn't take long for sin to have its effect. Remember, 40 days ago, the Israelites committed themselves to God. And in only a few short weeks, this stiff-necked people turned away. How could this be? Because of sin. So sin reveals our heart, the natural inclination of our heart, and sin reveals our debt. Sin reveals our debt. Well, eventually Moses comes back down from the mountain. He's carrying the Ten Commandments in his sands, the uh, commandments which were the work of God, which were written by the finger of God. And what does he find? He finds this idol. And he finds the people worshiping it, playing around, fooling around. So Moses confronts Aaron, whom he left in charge. And he says to Aaron in verse 21, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron says in verse 22, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they're set on evil? For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, this man who brought us up to the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. And so they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and Out came this calf. Oh, Aaron. Aaron, the mouthpiece of Moses. Moses' brother lies to his face, stone cold. 
He is scrambling for an excuse. He tried to blame everyone except himself. He tried to blame the people. He tried to blame the fire, just like Adam did to Eve. Remember, I, I only ate of the fruit that the woman you made gave to me. Aaron told a bold-faced lie and a pitiful, pitiful excuse. He sounds like a child answering for eating all the cookies. I don't know, my, my hand just went in the jar. Next thing I knew, the cookies were gone. No, Aaron, that's not how that happened. Look at verse 25. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who's on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you've been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. Now, we read this text about the consequences for these sins that the sons of Levi slayed 3,000 Israelites for this sin. And we may be tempted to think, isn't that a little bit harsh? Isn't that a little bit of an overreaction? Was it really necessary to kill all those people for making that little statue and dancing around it. After all, Moses was up on that mountain an awfully long time. They probably didn't know what to do. If that is your thought when you read this text, I urge you to cast that thought away immediately. Because the real question is not, why did God kill those 3,000 people for this? The question is, why didn't he kill every last one of them? You see, to have a perspective like that, that God is being too harsh or that he's not being fair, that is rooted in a misunderstanding about two things. Number one, it is rooted in a misunderstanding about how egregious sin is. And number two, it is rooted in a misunderstanding about how holy God is. Look back for a moment at Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, where God declared some of the first commandments. It says, uh, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And again in verse 23 of the same chapter, you shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. These were the commandments that the Israelites said that they would adhere to. These are the commandments that they agreed to obey. These were the commandments that were sealed in a covenant of blood. God was explicitly clear. This sin, this sin of idolatry will not be tolerated. And just so we know absolutely how serious God is about this particular sin of idol worship, look for me real quick with Deuter at Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 1. 
Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 1 says, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, Let us go after other gods, which you've not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. And you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And he continues, if your brother, the son of your mother, or your son, or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend who is as your own soul, entices you secretly saying, let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known, some of the gods of the peoples who are around you, whether near you or far off from you, from the one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall you pity him. Nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. You shall stone him to death with stones, because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And all Israel shall hear and fear and never again do any such wickedness as this among you. That is how serious God is about sin. It carries a death penalty. He simply cannot allow it. He is too holy to permit his people to partake in such things. Remember what James chapter 1, verse 15 says. It says, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And Romans 5, verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. Because all sinned. And Romans uh, 16, verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death. Sin is no small thing. Sin is so egregious that it requires one's life. Our sin, however uh, insignificant it might seem to us at times, is incredibly significant in the eyes of God. Our debt against a holy and perfect God can only be settled by payment of death. And we stand condemned in a heavenly courtroom, guilty of sin, and our sentence is a death sentence. And remember, just in case you're needing a justification uh, for God's authority to implement such a penalty, I will remind you that he is the creator and we are the creation. It's as simple as that. And because of that, sin reveals something else. Sin reveals our need. Sin reveals our need. Look at verse 30. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. 
So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will, forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you've written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. Moses confirms that this is a horrendous sin. And he asks God to forgive them for it, but yet he also acknowledges that they are not owed forgiveness. And that God is well within his authority to punish them for their deeds. However, Moses does something wonderful here. Moses offers up himself in their place. He says, if you can't forgive them, then please just punish me for what they've done. Let me take their punishment. But God would not allow it. God does not allow Moses to take the punishment for the sins of these people. Now, why not? Simple. Because one sinner cannot atone for the sins of another sinner. Moses did not partake in this particular act, this particular sin, but he was still a sinner. He himself stands guilty, not of this, but of other sins. Therefore, he is not able to stand in their place. He is not able to take their punishment. And really, God lets the people off easy for now. He sends a plague on the people as a temporal punishment for what they had done. But there were still spiritual, eternal implications for their sin. But God did show them mercy and that he allowed them to live. God hates sin. God's main characteristic is is holiness. God is love. Yes, that is true. God is love. But listen to me, as loving as God is, he is equally just. God is a God of love, but he is also holy, pure, perfect, and intolerant of sin. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is the complete antithesis of sin. And God's supreme example of his hatred of sin is the crucifixion of the Son of God. Now, the crucifixion is also his supreme example of his love towards us. But it is also his supreme example of his hatred of sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means me, that means you. And one day, each one of us will stand in the heavenly courtroom before the judge of all the earth and answer for our sins. And I assure you, we will stand condemned to death. But then, from the back of the courtroom, comes our intercessor, the new and better Moses. And he approaches the bench, and he objects. Not to the guilty verdict, not to the death sentence, but to who shall serve the sentence. His name is Jesus. He's the Son of God, and he loves you so much that he was willing to serve that sentence for you. 
He is the only one that's qualified to do it because he lived a sinless life. He's the only one worthy to cover your debt. He's the only one perfect enough to settle the score, and he's already done it. Your debt has been paid. The sentence has been served. Why? Why would he do that? Because he loves you. Because God loves you. God loves you so much that he sent his one and only son to die in your place. He condescended to earth. He lived a sinless life. And when it was time, he took the worst beating a man has ever known. He let them mock him. He let them spit on him. He let them whip him. And then he crawled onto a wooden cross voluntarily, and he let them drive nails through his limbs. Then he let them hang him up to die like a criminal. The sinless, perfect, pure son of God did that, and he did that for you. God loves you. All he wants is to know you and to be known by you. And if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I urge you, I urge you with everything I have, place your faith in him. It is so worth it. It is so worth it. Repent of your sins. The burden of sin is heavy. It's heavy. But I assure you, the burden of Jesus is light. Let's pray.